looked outside, saw the snow, and I said, I love this time of year. Because regardless of what the weather is like, we got two big things coming. Easter's coming, the greatest time of the year for those of us who claim Jesus as our Savior. But to get to Easter, you got to get through March Madness. Amen? I've been watching a couple of games in the greatest sporting event of the year, the NCAA basketball playoffs. I've only had a chance to watch maybe one full game, maybe almost two full games, but I've already witnessed something that will happen over and over again. At a crucial time in the game, perhaps uh, it's early in the game as one team begins to go on a bit of a slide, maybe toward the end of a close game and one team begins to panic or the coach is afraid they'll panic, a timeout is called. The purpose of this timeout is not that the coach has had a sudden revelation of a novel and magic play that he wants them to implement. The purpose of the timeout can be summarized in one word, whether it's said or whether it's not, but it often is. Focus. Focus. We're losing our focus. Let's regroup and let's focus. It's amazing. This entire year, several years, a lifetime of training for this one event. And we lose our focus. Over the last month, how many of us have either said it or heard it? Focus. Said it to somebody else. You've wanted to say it to somebody else. You've heard it said to someone. You've had it said someone say it to you. Or you should have had someone say it to you. Or you said it to yourself. In a bigger picture way than we might realize, that would probably include all of us. Focus. Let's begin this morning with a well-known focus exercise. It's become somewhat of a classic from the world of human psychology. Uh, You've probably seen it. It demonstrates how we know that focus should probably be something we say to ourselves more often than we realize. It's a little video with two groups of students, a group in white t-shirts, a group in black t-shirts. They'll be passing basketballs around to each other and weaving back and forth between each other as they do it. What you need to do is count the number of passes the white team makes. Got it? Here we go. White team. The answer is 15. But did you see the gorilla? Yeah, some of you did. Some of you didn't. I know you didn't. Because I didn't the first time I saw it. Isn't it amazing how much of the big picture we tend to miss? Some of you will say, well, the problem isn't focus. The problem is you didn't see the big picture. Too much focus. Well, okay. Or we might say the problem is we tend to focus in a wrong kind of way. You see, the discipline of how we focus, how we focus, and what we focus on is a really big deal, especially... When what is claiming our focus is that negative stuff, the bad stuff that's coming against us, which happens all the time. But it's just as important as when there is stuff that we think is good stuff or attractive stuff that we're being lured into. And just as much when there is nothing that seems to be happening, when the landscape around us is pretty bleak and barren. Focus. Or, 
in a transition time. If you're graduating from high school or college or are in any kind of a transition in life, focus is a huge discipline we need to give ourselves to. Let's, let's, let's zoom out that focus a little bit and see the big picture of where we, where we are and where we're going in our teaching this month. Uh, we're in a teaching series in which we, we talked, we've talked about what it means to be cross-trained. A similar sort of idea to an Advent season in which we talk about preparing for Christmas. Now, when we talk about training, the first thing that comes to, to our minds, or one of the first things, is discipline, right? And when we talk about spiritual formation, spiritual training, we also tend to think of spiritual disciplines. And when we use the term spiritual disciplines, we, we most often think about what might be better called spiritual practices, uh, like daily reading of the Bible, praying, fasting, maybe even Lent. But unless those kinds of practices lead to another level of disciplines, they're not worth the time we put into them. And actually, they may be a detriment to our development because they can become simply a cause for pride, for a false sense of security in our faith, for a false sense of spiritual authenticity. They might actually be signals of hypocrisy. There's a wonderful book I read a number of years ago by, by Gary Thomas. It's called Authentic Faith, The Power of a Fire-Tested Life. And, and this book helped me understand why it is that, that the many people that claim to believe every word the Bible says, to read it every day, to spend more time praying than I might even say I do every day, and yet they seemed also to be the most critical, most self-centered, most proud, well, hypocrites. It's because these disciplines do not automatically lead to growth and maturity. Paul points to that. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when he says, knowledge builds up, or sorry, knowledge puffs up, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, is Paul against knowledge? Uh, no. He's one of the most knowledge-focused writers in all of the Bible. But unless the discipline of learning knowledge about God leads to Life disciplines of sacrificial love, which he talks about, there's a disconnect, right? Uh, Thomas points out that, that those practices that we often call disciplines are, are things that we can initiate, we choose to do. But what he calls authentic disciplines, that's where I got the term from, authentic disciplines are disciplined responses to circumstances that come at us in life that are for the most part initiated outside of ourselves that develop, these disciplines develop in us the character of Jesus and display through us the beauty of Jesus. Life says no to us in some way. Life tries to lure us in some direction. But spiritual practices should lead to and should empower us to discipline ourselves to respond with disciplines like selflessness. We talked about last week. Like waiting. Like, well, today, we're going to talk in a context of, of suffering, enduring persecution. Next week, we're going to talk about forgiveness. There's also contentment, sacrifice, mourning well, even in general, love. Love is a discipline. Those are the authentic disciplines that are the marks of a cross-trained life, and disciplines they are. They don't just flow. 
The key idea we saw last week was that at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, which is what those who are Christians claim to do, to follow Jesus alone as our leader, to actually follow Jesus, we have to come to terms with what he said was the core discipline of following him. And that is, like him, to live out the pattern of the cross in our lives by dying. To truly live, there's something that, die, that, that has to die. There's always something in us that has to die. There's got to be some dying going on. When we bring ourselves to the cross and come under the cross, become in Jesus, we, we died, says Paul, to our old selves, which includes patterns of thinking and behaving, which we got to sort of continue to prune. But it's not just about dying well. In order to die well, we got to learn to see well. Focus. In order to die well, we have to learn to see well. There are a number of passages in God's Word we could work through to, to reflect on what this discipline of focus involves, but we're going to look at just one. It's in a book written to people who are encountering suffering, true persecution for being followers of Jesus and are beginning to wonder whether it's worth it. Now, that could be any one of... Uh, a number of New Testament books, but the one I'm thinking about is the letter to Hebrew Christians called Hebrews. And we're going to look today at chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. And, and what I'd like to do is uh, just read chapter 2. Now, if you've read the Bible and worked through the book of Hebrews, you know that it's a discipline in itself to work through the book of Hebrews. It, it's a tough book. But l- listen to chapter 2. We must, he says, play, pay careful, more careful attention to what we have heard. So that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just discipline, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed confirmed to us by those who heard it. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It was not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man, that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we don't see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, 
He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This chapter points us to three things that are really important to understand what it means to focus well. Number one, it talks about a danger that is a, causes us to lose our focus or is a symptom of losing focus, probably put better. Number two, it reveals a tension that naturally confuses our focus. And finally, it gives us the overarching vision that must claim our focus for us to be able to grow in this discipline of dying well, of dying to live, and to grow into the true disciplines of authentic faith. So, the, the, the first ever-present danger that causes us to lose our focus, it's how he begins the chapter. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. What is the danger? It's the danger of drifting. The danger of, of, the danger of drifting is, is, well, it just happens naturally. You see, we all, want life to, we all want life to just flow, right? What we forget is there's only one direction life flows. Always. One of the reasons for preparing for Easter is that drift is the natural direction of everything in life. And in order to see well, we have to, what does it say? Hear well. Be care, pay careful attention to what you have heard. Because, you see, what we see depends on what we've heard. The reason you didn't see the gorilla is because you were told to look for white shirts. You see what you hear. You may have heard the old story about a bitter farmer who died, and in his will he left his farm to the devil. The court didn't quite know what to do with it. How, how do you give a farm to the devil? After some deliberation, the judge handed out his decision. Here's what he said. The best way to carry out the wishes of the deceased is just to leave the farm alone. Allow it to grow weeds, allow the soil to erode, let the house and barn rot. In our opinion, he said, the best way to leave something to the devil is to do nothing. Drift. You see, it's often the pain in life that causes us to look deeper. And one of the things we can see when we look deeper is that we've drifted. And as we come into Easter, God's invitation to us is to look back. And rather than try to ignore the pain, rather than causing it to make us resent our pain and cover up our pain, let's arrest our thinking and say, oh my goodness, I've drifted. Which is what Nicole talked about in her story, right? Some time ago, I was processing with someone their personal pain, and, and when they opened up about how they had processed their personal pain and became a bit of a confession time, it, it made me look in the mirror, and I, and I wondered out loud, I was, I, I was talking to them and validating what they were saying, but at the same time, I was looking in the mirror, and I said this, isn't it weird how someone else's sin toward us surfaces our own sinfulness? We act in ways we're not proud of. We think thoughts we didn't realize we were capable of. 
We say things we'd never allow others to get away with saying. And whether we admit it or not, it's often largely because we've been living surface lives, drifting and not knowing it. Anything in your life that is exposing your drift? Let's go back to Hebrews 2. What's, what's the, the drifting he's most concerned about? How shall we escape if we ignore or some translations have neglect. I like that better. Neglect, such a great salvation. Look closely. He does not say how shall we escape if we reject such a great salvation. He's talking to people who say they have accepted it. They're in. But they're ignoring it. In what way do we ignore it? In the way that we do not take charge of what's happening in here. Discipline our thinking. Drifting, in this author's mind, is accepting something as real, but not living as if it's the most relevant, impactful, powerful truth to claim our focus in every single situation. Can you see ways in which you might be drifting? Maybe caring a little less than you used to? Demanding a little more than you should? Losing a little passion? Questioning whether something is worth it? What you once saw as real and powerful, you're beginning to act ho-hum about it. Not allowing it to change how you see everything. To act as if it's true, because it is. In spite of what you see around you. So, what is it that, that confuses us and allows us to drift? Well, the author goes on to talk about the underlying tension in our heads that naturally confuses our focus, that keeps us from seeing the big picture. Now, what he says is somewhat, somewhat obscure, if, we've read, if we're reading it for the first time, and until we get a few pieces of the background. As, as we read this author's analogy, uh, some of us might feel a little bit like I do when somebody uses a quote from Lord of the Rings or, or Star Trek. I'm sure it's meaningful, but... Unless you know the characters and, the, and get the premise, it's kind of lost on me. Like, just give me a jock sports analogy, right? Now, that may be true of Lord of the Rings and Star Trek, but if we want to understand what God is doing in Jesus, there are a few pieces of, of, of the big picture we, we just have to get. So let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about this letter to the Hebrews. It's, it's a book that is written about 30 years 35 or so years after Jesus has left the scene. And it's written to a group of people who are predominantly Jewish believers. They have roots in, in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. They have seen in Jesus the fulfillment of, of God's plan for his original people, the fulfillment for the hope of all peoples. Like it's happened. And they give themselves to following Jesus. But then life happens. And for them, in some ways, life actually gets worse. Well, the life in their face coming at them every day seemed to be worse. And really for them, it was, it was a threefold whammy, a perfect storm of marginalization and persecution. They were, they were rejected by their own Jewish people. You see, for a while, Christians were actually um, still part of the Jewish community. They didn't see themselves as Louis losing their Jewish identity, but, but fulfilling in Jesus their Jewish identity. But increasingly, the power brokers within the formal leadership of, uh, of Judaism, the, the, the power brokers whom Jesus faced on earth, who actually killed Jesus, was now beginning to kill them. 
or at least pushed them outside of the circle. But not only were they pushed outside of the circle of their own cultural heritage, Christians were beginning to be persecuted by the state, the Roman Empire. They've lost the sense of community with their own people. They've, they've lost any protection from the state. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse. They're becoming poor and people are starting to die. But there's one more thing that complicates that piece for them. The third piece to the perfect storm. There was a way for them to avoid both of these tensions. Judaism was actually a protected religion of the Roman Empire. They could just go back to that and just sort of silently celebrate Jesus. And so they are beginning to ask questions like, is it really real? Does it really work? This book is written to suffering people who are beginning to be worn down and ask the tough questions. That's the big picture of this book. Now, let's look at our passage, verse, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, There is a place where someone testified. As soon as he starts that quote, they know exactly where this place was and who that someone was. It's a very key text from their Jewish heritage. It's a very key text from our heritage that we should know. Psalm 8, we should memorize it. I've, I've memorized that psalm a number of times. And it's a great psalm, Psalm 8, the Jewish Bible. And, and he uses this text to help them see the, the struggle that they are facing in a bigger picture light. It's a struggle that's built into us because of how we are created in the first place. Psalm 8 is a, is a, is a beautiful, powerful, artistic, emotionally evocative picture of the way God created the world. It takes them back to creation, to Genesis 1 and 2. And it begins with a statement of praise to this great God. O Lord, our God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. All I have to do is look around, he says, and be amazed at how awesome you must be to have made all this. And the heavens he refers to is obviously the night sky because he goes on to say, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, and then the quote, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? The son of man that you care for him. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made rulers of the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Every other created being goes, goes on to talk about the fish and everything else under his feet. In other words, man has authority over everything. He ends the psalm by saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In all the earth. I see it in everything. Now, let's look at the, how the author of Hebrews uses this quote. He stops after he says, and he's talking here about humanity. He's, we get a little confused because sometimes that title, Son of Man, well, it was the favorite title that Jesus used to himself, but in, this, in the psalm and in when Hebrews talks about it, it's talking about us. It's just a, a, it's just a restatement. What is mankind or humanity that you're mindful of him and human beings that you care for them. That's what he's saying. In putting everything under us, God left nothing that's not subject to us. Yet, yet, he says, we do not see everything subject to us. You see what he's saying? He's introducing us to this tension in our hearts. In our hearts, we know we were created for greatness. 
In our hearts, we just, we just know. It's built into us to know that we are somebody. We are the peak of God's creation. We are the, the image of God. The, we are to accurately reflect Him. We are to authentically represent Him. We are to authoritatively rule for Him. That's who we are. But when we experience the world, that is not how we feel. The world and life is regarding us. That's not how life is treating us. At present, we do not see everything under our feet. Every single day, I do not seem to experience the dignity I know I was created for. And I can never get to the level that I know I was made to have. And you're saying, exactly, exactly. Nobody listens to me. That's what we're saying. Nothing happens right for me. When was the last time you said something like that? This is the life we live. It's what we, it's what we see. Well, it's also what we don't see, right? We don't see it happening the way we want to see it happening. And without the discipline of focus, it is all we will see. What I'm experiencing in life is not what I was created for. That's one way of putting the underlying tension in life. And it's when life gets tough that that, that that tension comes to the surface, right? And then we take it to the next level. We say, I never get what I deserve. Hold it. Deserve? Whoever said anything about deserve? It is what we were created for, but that does not mean that we deserved it and we deserve it. And, and we miss the second tension that he has surfaced in this passage. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you even give a wit about him. You, you see, the real tension we should be focusing on is not that I'm not getting what I deserve. The real tension I was created for is that I was created for a status that I really did nothing for to deserve and it should humble me. As the psalmist looks at the grandeur of the heavens, the glory of the God who created all this, he is overwhelmed, first of all, by the insignificance of humanity. We do not deserve this at all, and yet we were created for it. We lose sight of the overall tension unless we recognize both sides to it. We were created for it, but we didn't deserve it. But there's a third level to this tension that makes it even more complex, that makes our struggle even more confusing. And it's the main focus of this book of Hebrews and what Jesus does in it for us through, this, through his life and death. He just hints at it in the next verse, verse 9, when he talks about death. And then in the following verse, verse 10, when he uses that, what's become a very religious-sounding word, although in those days it wasn't necessarily that religious, it was the word salvation. He's introducing why Jesus came to die for us, not just to forgive our sins, but to restore us to our glory that we lost. And the tension is this, not only did we not deserve it, when we were created for it because of our insignificance compared to God, but by the way we handled it, Genesis 3, we lost the right to that position. You see, as human beings, we were created to have authority over it all, but our authority was a derived authority, authority under God. Only by accepting God's authority over us could we exercise proper authority over all creation. And we refused that accepting God's authority over us. 
We wanted to become self-authenticating, self-determining beings, and we still struggle with that today. All of the struggles we are having in every area, including the struggles in the area at the very core of our beings, our sexuality, are at some level struggles of not realizing that we are not and we never will be self-determining, self-authenticating beings. Our problems come from the fact that we abandon our true position of having authority over everything under God. We like the over, every part, over everything part, but we didn't like the under God part. You see, here's the irony in it all. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. When, when we decided not to serve God but serve ourselves, what we discovered is that we can't even master ourselves. Our own emotions, our own desires, let alone our world. We lost more than we gained. And our only solution is that we, in the end, we seem to think we have to give in to those desires. And we find all kinds of ways to justify that. It's no wonder we're in such a mess. And it's no wonder this focus piece is such a discipline. Excuse me. Right? It's no wonder we just naturally drift. But in spite of the always present danger of drifting that causes us to lose our focus and the underlying complex and competing internal tensions that, that confuse our focus with one of those great but statements in the Bible, we are now brought to that great overarching vision that must claim our focus in every circumstance and every situation. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. That's reality, but. We do see Jesus. The one who was ruler of everything, Lord of the universe, who also was made, like us, a little lower than the angels. The most common name Jesus gave himself was Son of Man. Son of Man. One of us. The new, true man. As Paul says, the second Adam. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, who was already now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Yes, it's true that we do not yet see everything subject to him. It's not that what we see is totally wrong. It's that what we tend to see is totally incomplete. At present, we don't see it. You're right. It's not true yet. But we see Jesus God's plan was for us to have that control, but we got manipulated into thinking that we could have it without having it under God, and we, we gave it up. By disobeying God, we took ourselves out, and in doing that, we gave over control of what God gave us. We gave over control to God's archenemy, Satan. You see, when we, when we listen to someone, when we follow someone's suggestion, we place ourselves under them, and suddenly Satan take, took over the control that we were tended to have. Now, here's where the beauty of God's plan comes in. Could God have simply dealt with his enemy with a word? Absolutely, he could have. Absolutely. But God's not just into getting personal revenge. And God is fair. Because humanity was the ones that abandoned the plan. Because it was humanity that gave up authority, there's only one fair way to get that authority back through humanity. 
And that's how God made it happen. In spite of, of allowing it to cost him dearly, he became man. And our, on our behalf, he got back for us what we gave up. Oh yes, it was God's plan. It was God's grace. It was God who pulled it off. But it was God enfleshed. A human being, son of man, that won back the destiny for which we were created. Let's think through back, back through that a little bit more. What would it take for a man to gain back the destiny lost by man? Well, number one, it would take a man who did not have the propensity by nature to, to fall, to disobey. Number two, he had to be in a position to be able to do it. But for him to do it, for the crown to be restored to humankind, the curse had to be reversed. It had to be annulled. What was the curse? It was death. The great sword of the enemy is death. In order to remove the curse, someone, a man, had to go into Satan's territory and come back the victor. The author talks about that in verse 9, so that the, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There's a, there's a scene in the book of Revelation that picks up on this conflict, and, uh, uh, on this concept, and fleshes it out a bit more. There, there's, there's, a number, there's one command in the book of Revelation. There's a, a primary command in the book of Revelation. It's for John. It's for us. You know what that command is? Focus. Seriously. Focus. Now, the word it uses is, look. Look. He's meaning focus. Chapter 4, in a vision. John is told to look, and he sees God sitting on the throne of the universe at the end of time with millions of angels worshiping him. The call goes out to find someone who is able to open the little book with seven seals, and, and that book is, is the title deed to the authority of the earth, the right to rule the earth. A search is made for someone, a human, throughout all of history who has the right to open the seals and take rulership. Surely there would be someone who could take rightful rule as God designed. But no one is found. And as John sees this scene, he starts weeping and he's, he's thinking it's never going to turn out right. But then a voice comes to him. Don't cry, John. Focus. Look again. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And, and John turns and as he focuses... To his amazement, it's not a lion he sees, it's a lamb with blood staining his neck, a butchered lamb. And as he watches, the lamb steps to the tr throne and takes the little book and opens it and all of heaven breaks out in applause and worship. At last, there was someone who has taken back the right to rule humanity. A man has reclaimed what, what mankind has given away. Well, my friends, that's what I would call the ultimate good news. This is not just something mystical, religious. What Jesus did on earth in real time was to restore me to what I was created for. And it should impact everything about everything. And because I tend to drift, because I tend to get so confused, because everything I experience every day seems to be against me, keeping me down from what I know inside of me I was intended to be, it's a core discipline that I need to keep working on. In everything that happens, and I begin to say, oh, it must not be real. I'm not getting what I deserve. I need to say to myself, no, it's not real yet. But I see Jesus. 
Those things are not all that's real, and that is the entire message of this entire book of Hebrews. No, it's not like it was created to be, and life is tough. But above that toughness and in that toughness, will you focus, look closer, will you see Jesus? So how is it we're supposed to see Jesus for us in the difficulties and challenges of life? I'm just going to use an outline that Tim Keller uses when he talks about the rest of this chapter. I love it. It summarizes what the author is saying that we need to discipline ourselves to keep seeing, focusing on when we see Jesus. Number one, he is the king. The king, the one over all and above all who runs it all, who has stooped down to identify with me. He gets down and dirty involved with me. He is the one who is over all, who has come down and become the son of man. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, the author has brought into our focus how lofty Jesus really is, the creator of the universe. Verse 8, it says, about Jesus, God says, your throne, your throne, the king, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Chapter 2, he takes that in opposite direction. He's not like the gods of the Greek and Romans, Greeks and Romans of the day who's perched high up on Mount Olympus with maidens and wine who occasionally look down when they're bored. Jesus doesn't just look down. He comes down. He is the king who became the son of man over and over again in this chapter. That's a key theme. Verse 11, he's part of the same family. Verse 14, he's one with us in our humanity. He's shared it. Verse 17, he's like us in every way. Verse 18, tempted like we are tempted. There is one thing I cannot say to God. I cannot say to God, you don't understand my pain. You don't get my struggle. The king came down, became like us in every way, and was tested like us in every way. In my pain, what it means to focus, to see Jesus, to see that I have a God who is present with me, suffering with me in that pain, he has suffered it. My father died suddenly when I was 30 years old. I I still remember the the numbness of my emotions and, and the rawness of the pain. And I remember one more thing, actually two more things, the one I'm going to talk about. In in the well-intentioned triteness of most of the things that people said those days between his death and his funeral, as we just basically hung out most of the time at mother's house and friends would come over, it was awkward, what do you say? We often say are these platitudes that are meant to be encouraging, often religious platitudes. But by this time I'd experienced enough of my own pain not to believe in simple platitudes and to think a verse from the Bible is going to just change everything and remove the cloud. What I remember is one afternoon I was sitting there in the house and looked up and down our long driveway was this familiar vehicle, double cab 4x4 truck driven by... Ben. Ben was a longtime friend of my father, had worked for my father at times, and he was uh, sort of between my father and I in age, and, and so we were all sort of family friends. And Ben was a burly truck driver with a bear-like look and a great big belly laugh. As he came up the walk to the house, I braced myself for another simplistic platitude. When Ben walked in the door, 
All he did was throw his big arms around me and start crying. No words. He even apologized for having no words to say. But to this day, that's one of the only good things I remember about that week. Here was a man who simply identified with me, walked with me in my pain. That's what I get when I see Jesus. He's the king who identified with me, but he's also the captain who has faced death for me. Verse 10, use an interesting word to describe what we are to see in Jesus. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word author is, is an interesting word. If you look it up in a, a word dictionary, it, 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 the original word means originator or founder, but it's also, talk, it's also used in the sense of prince, of leader, or as one commentator says, Champion. A champion is, it was can someone who, who was, was not just out there, champion, winning a battle for somebody else. A champion, well, think David and Goliath. He was one who was engaged in representative combat. He looks out at the battle, sees you running for your life. He runs over, puts himself between you and the enemy, and takes on the enemy for you. What is the ultimate enemy? What came into the world because we gave up our position in the universe? Death. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of sin and death, that is the devil, and free all those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There is nothing Jesus can't defeat for you because there's nothing he hasn't already defeated for you. He has defeated your ultimate enemy. But there's one more way we need to see Jesus, says this author. He is not just the king who got dirty with me. He's not just the captain, the champion who has conquered death for me and invites me to take his hand. He is the brother who is proud of me. Several times, verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse 12, it's, a, it's a, a quote from the Old Testament. They should have seen it. I will declare your name among, I will, he's saying to God, I will declare your name among whom? My brothers. My brothers. It's us. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest. He is not ashamed. That's just that uh, it's a double negative in order to emphasize the positive. He is proud. He is proud to call us his brothers. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter who, other, who you are afraid others think you are or are not. It doesn't matter whether, whether you are a pimp who has demeaned and abused and controlled women, whether you're a drug dealer, the head of a drug cartel, whether you have lived under the influence of and control of those people and think you are a nothing. It doesn't matter what anyone else's verdict is of you and whether anyone else has or hasn't said to you what you think needs to be said to you, even your parents. You do not have to be controlled by that anymore because Jesus is your brother who is proud of you. 
Because you have seen through all of the surface crap that keeps you down and makes you want to try to prove yourself that, you, that you're better than somebody or just as good as somebody else. No. He wants to win your heart. And if you've allowed him to win your heart, he looks at you and says, don't look at all of that other stuff. It no longer has to control over you. Paul says, I don't even care what I think about myself. Doesn't matter. I am your brother and I am proud of you. What do you see? What are you looking at? What's claiming your focus? Don't let your focus on the whole long list of stuff you don't see or all of those things that you see that are against you, that have been done to you. You're drifting. You may be right to a degree. At present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, the king who is identified with us, the captain, the champion who has taken on our greatest enemy and a brother who is proud of us. And what is it that Jesus says when we come to him? Well, one more time, just simply follow me. Follow me. There's a simple test, and we're going to end with this. Worship team, why don't you come forward? There's a simple test to see if I'm developing the discipline of focus. Seeing Jesus as the king who identifies with me, the captain who has taken on my enemy for me, a brother who is proud of me. A simple test. You see, we often say, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus is walking with me through this. That's nice. It's a nice thought, but it's not enough. To really understand what the king who identifies with me, the captain who defeated for me, defeated everything for me, and the brother who is proud of me is to hear him say when he says, what does it mean to follow me? It doesn't mean that he's walking with me. It's not just about me walking with you, he says. Have I not won the right for you to reverse that in your head? Will you take my hand and walk with me? It's being willing to go where he is taking you, through pain, dying to stuff you're hanging on to, knowing that where he's taken with you is good. He is taking you the glory that is above everything. You going there? Lord, we see so many ways in which we are tending to drift. We acknowledge the ways in which our, we have allowed our, our focus to become confused. And Father, as we prepare for this Easter, I, I just pray that you will help us to develop again and give ourselves again to the discipline of focus. But we see Jesus. The one who is everything. Open up our eyes to see him today. Open up our hearts to allow us to see him today. In your wonderful, beautiful, powerful name. Amen. Let's stand and make that a prayer as we leave today.